Okay, this is part three of our series of contemporary approaches to tshuva. So for those of you who have been here for the first two, so we started with Rav Kook. Rav Kook who passed away in 1935. Uh, he described, for those who remember, a universal concept of tshuva, that the whole world is rising, the whole world is hurtling on a path from imperfection to perfection. And as we studied then, he described tshuva as uh, an all-encompassing uh, matter that affects one's health, that affects the world, the Jews, the non-Jews, everybody was on a, uh, on a path. Last week, Rav Miller took, uh, Rabbi Miller took us on the path of Rosalovetric, or the Rav, a very philosophical approach. We spoke about Nietzsche and Spinoza and uh, how the Rav rewrote, uh, how understood how tshuva can rewrite or reinterpret our past actions and a very philosophical approach, which uh, you could review the, uh, the recording from that if you uh, to go over the Rav's approach. What I'd like to do tonight is a Hasidish approach from the Slanim Rebbe, Rav Shalom Noach uh, Berezovsky, Zechron Levracha. Passed away about 20 years ago, and uh, his works have become very, very popular, not only in the world of the Hasidim, but in the yeshivish world as well. In the yeshivas, his works are studied. He had the brilliantly figured out a way to combine Hasidish thought, and he was a Rebbe. He looked like a Rebbe, he dressed like a Rebbe, he acted like a Rebbe, but he was uh, very much engaged in the world of, of Lima Torah in the standard form like you would find in the yeshivas, and he combined it in a way that his svarim have become very, very popular uh, amongst all uh, branches of, uh, of, uh, of, Ju- of Yiddishkeit. And uh, so let's take a look at how he addresses some of these issues in an approach to tshuva. Two words, a couple words of introduction. If you flip to the backside, sheet number four has a, a very brief introduction or biography, I should really say, just a little bit about who, uh, to talk a little bit about who it is that we're studying. Uh, so his svarim were known as the Nesiva Shalom. You, if you, I sh- all my box, uh, books are in boxes right now, so... I didn't have one to, uh, to bring in. There are these red uh, svarim. They're all the same. They look the same. He wrote extensively on uh, Parsha. Oh, he, he was a rabbi. He used to give drashas every Shabbos, and they would write up his drashas. Uh, so we have on all the various Parshas many different approaches. He wrote on the Chagim, on the Yontivs, and he wrote on just general topics. So one of his works is he called Nis- Nisiv means a path. So literally the books mean the Nesiva Shalom, the paths of peace. And one of them he wrote, uh, the title was Nesiva's Tshuva, the Nesiva Tshuva, or the path of Tshuva. He wrote seven or eight different uh, long articles on it. And what we're going to learn tonight together is his introduction to that section, his introduction to the concept of Tshuva, where he puts forth his basic philosophy on what Tshuva is. Uh, he was born in, uh, in, in Baranovich in uh, what is today Belarus in 1911 and died in 2000. So he lived, uh, he was 91 years old when he died in very contemporary. I mean, he literally died, as, as I mentioned, uh, just 22 years ago in the year 2000. Uh, he was only the Rebbe for the last 20 years of his life, from 1981 until his passing in uh, 2000. Um, and he's, because of his writings and the popularity of his books, one of the most uh, influential of the contemporary Hasidic uh, Rebbes, uh, as I mentioned, both amongst the Hasidim and the uh, non-Hasidim alike. He was born into a very prominent family uh, in Slanim in uh, 1933. He married the daughter of uh, Rav Avram Weinberg, who would become uh, the Slanim Rebbe, uh, meaning when he married him, his father-in-law was not yet the Rebbe, but he did later become the Rebbe. And uh, Shalom Noach, who we're studying, became the recorder of that Rebbe and the previous Rebbe, meaning they didn't, they didn't have recorders, and the Rebbes would often speak on Shabbos anyway. So even if they did, not everything was, by, not, people were holding phones every time a Rebbe would speak like today, and you can have it recorded. So Rav Noach Shalom was the person in charge after Shabbos of writing the Rebbe's Torah. And he became the bridge to really promulgating not just his own Torah, which he later did, but 
um, some of the rebbeim that uh, and the rebbes that came uh, before him. In 1940, when he was a young man, he was still only 30 years old, he was appointed the Rosh Yeshiva of a Lubavitcher Yeshiva in Tel Aviv, and he only did that for a year until 1941 when he opened the Slenomer Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Uh, with just five students. And the reason why that's of great significance because this is an example very often where the Gemara says that Hashem sometimes is maktim l'refuah l'maka. He sends us what we need to help ourselves before He actually sends us the problem. He already gives us the tools. So this Slanama Yeshiva opened in Yerushalayim in 1941 with five students. You might say, like, what was he thinking? And I, I don't know what he was thinking, but I can tell you what happened because when the Slenomer dynasty was wiped out in the Holocaust over the next couple of years, this is 1941, all those who survived, the question all survivors said is like, now what? Where do we go? What do we do? So the Slenomer Hasidim, they had the answer to that question. There was a yeshiva in Yerushalayim, and the fact that it started with five boys was irrelevant. All of the survivors, that's where they went. The yeshiva flourished, and the Slenomer Hasidim uh, were able to rebuild uh, through that. Eventually, as I mentioned, he became the Rebbe in 1981. Um, and uh, was a very, uh, very popular, and his, his teachings continue to be uh, studied uh, throughout the world. Okay, let's learn a little bit. Let's learn about his approach. What we're going to start with is um, two sources. We'll start with two classic sources, which he brings, um, both of which have been addressed already by the Rav, as we learned last week and two weeks ago by uh, Rav Cook. But we'll see, as is always the approach, everyone has their own take on things, and so we'll start with that. The Talmud Yerushalmi, in source number one, we generally study the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud. The Talmud Shalmi says as follows, Sha'alu l'chachma chotei mahu oncho. The prophets asked wisdom, so to speak. Obviously, there's no such person of wisdom, but the Chazal sages speak in this way to tell us if wisdom could speak. The idea of chachma was asked, what should happen? What should be the punishment of a sinner? Meaning, if you looked at sin from a wisdom, logical perspective, well, what should happen based on Chachma to such a person who sinned? Amrulahem, so wisdom, so to speak, answers, Chatoim tir wisdom, evil should pursue sinners. And what happens when evil, they should be destroyed, they should be wiped out. If you ask Chachma what should happen to a sinner, wisdom would tell you, you sin, you're done. That's what should happen. So they asked the idea of prophecy. What should be the punishment for a sinner? So prophecy answered, Similarly, you're a sinner, you should die. That's your punishment. That's what should happen. So if you ask wisdom, you ask prophecy, then there's nothing to talk about. So they asked Hashem himself. What should be the punishment for a sinner? Hashem responds, let him do tshuva. Let him do tshuva and he'll be atoned for. Now right away you notice, what was the question? The question that was asked to Chachma is, what was it? What should be the punishment for the sinner? And they answer, punishment? I'll tell you, finish. What does Hashem answer? He doesn't answer what the punishment should be. He says what you should do. Now, what this symbolizes, as we'll see, is there's a certain illogical nature in tshuva, which is what the Rav, that was the springboard of last week's discussion as well. It doesn't make, from a logical perspective, both Nevu and Chachma would say that should be the end of it. Hashem has to say, I'm going to give you something, I'm going to give you tshuva that will give you an approach. We'll, we'll circle back to this idea, which Hashem is basically saying, there's a way to circumvent 
a system through the concept of tshuva. One other Gemara, which is oft quoted, which is B'makom, source number two, the Gemara in Bracha says, B'makom she omdim, in the place that Ba'alei tshuva stand, ein tzadikim gemurim yecholim la'amor. Even the most complete and fully righteous people can't touch them. They can't stand in such a place where the place, the spiritual place that a Balchuva occupies is such that even a Tzadik Gomor cannot. Now, this Gemara is a very perplexing Gemara because it touches on a great philosophical question that is a great table talk uh, for your Friday night table. If you were to take two Jews and one Jew was good their whole life, literally from the grade school, elementary school, high school. They were good. They did all the right things. They made all the right decisions. They, they were good. And you take another Jew who uh, lived life and had some fun and did things as they wanted to do, all in, inappropriate behaviors. And then sometimes in their 40s and 50s, this Jew had some awakening and says, you know what? I've been going down the wrong path. And they turn themselves around and they do everything right now. And you look at these two Jews and you would say, which one is better in the eyes of Hashem? In a spiritual perspective, which one would we value more? I think it would be safe to say that from a logical perspective, we would go with, you know, the Jew's done right. The, I, he's put in all the work. She's lived her whole life the right way. That's not fair. Evidence, and I can prove this from the fact that anytime a politician tries to run or enters into a new level of office that they're running for, what does everybody do? We try to dig up their past. And if we can find anything, any comment, any error, what do we do? We say, no, this person's not fit. They once made a comment on Twitter 15 years ago, you know, and that's it, finish. When they were 18, you know, they said something, so why don't we apply, we don't apply the rule, oh, now they've done shuva, they're even better than a squeaky clean pot. We don't say that. We throw them out. And yet the Gemara says, not only do we not throw out a balchuva, he's better. We put him in a higher place than a tzaddik gomer. It's a perplexing statement. Let's take a look at how the Nesiva Shalom, the Slanam Rebbe, Zechron Levrach addresses. So we're going to study together his introduction. His Hebrew is a little bit more difficult and, and uh, complex, so what I did is I tried to translate it. We'll learn it straight from the English, um, and you'll have to trust me that I did a good job on the uh, translation, but you'll see that I couldn't have come up with this on my own, so you'll know that it wasn't, it's not mine. Yes? Yes, meaning, very possibly. You know, that's part of it, as Rabbi Miller mentioned, Rabbi, there's a lot of discussion as to why Rabbi Rabbeinu Yonah wrote his Sefer on Shuvah. Part of it was his own repentance. Yes, there's a, a lot, 100%. Let's take a look at the introduction here. Shuva is a full and complete tractate he opens up with. It's a Masechta, it's a Masechta Shlema. What does it mean to say that it's a complete tractate? So anyone who's had the opportunity to learn a tractate of Gemara knows... It's complicated. It's big. It has, starts on Daf Beis and it continues on. And if you want to master a Masechta of Gemara, so it means you got a lot to learn. Not only do you need to go through it Daf Yomi, it's very nice Daf Yomi, but you can't say you mastered it. You got to go through it once and twice and three times and slowly. There's a lot to do. So when he says Tshuva is a Masechta, when he opens up his introduction with that phrase, he's right away saying, 
We're going to address something that everybody feels like we know. We do it every year. We sit there, but you need to know that what you're about to engage as you learn about the concept of tshuva is that it's a masech It's a complete tractate, which means you have to study it. You have to analyze it. There are going to be commentaries to understand what's going on. It's a wondrous and fundamental aspect to being a Jew. Here also, he addresses, as Rav Kook did, that this is an aspect to being a Jew, meaning a Jew who holds themselves not to be a Baal Tshuva. I'm not a Baal Tshuva. It's terrible. Every, every Jew needs to be a Baal Tshuva. Baal Tshuva means I'm involved, I'm holding in the, in the realm of Tshuva, which is a fundamental aspect of being a Jew, wider than the earth and deeper than the sea, which is borrowing a phrase from the Hebrew. It is an intrinsic element of a Jew's life that defines his life as a Jew. Another strong statement. Now again, he, like Rav Cook, would be very troubled that we are studying specifically this work in the month of Elo. He would say, why are you relegating me to Elo? I, I, I'm starting by saying this is a fundamental aspect to being a Jew. It's an intrinsic element of a Jew's life that defines his life as a Jew, if you are a Baal Tshuva or not. But we all know the reality. If I would have announced that we were learning a tshuva series in the middle of December, you all would have said to me, you would have said, why, why are we learning about tshuva in December? Rabbi, what's going on? There's a, that's the problem, is that we think, like, okay, yeah, well, of course, we should have a tshuva series. But like, why would you do that in December? That doesn't make any sense. But we have to understand, as he says, it's an, an element of, that defines our life as a Jew. It is relevant to everyone. Now listen to this. It is relevant to everyone. Whether a person is a Russia, a wicked person, a Benoni, an intermediate kind of person, or a Tzaddik, Gomer, completely righteous. What's he basing himself when he defines us these three categories? He's coming off of the very famous Gemara Masechus Rosh Hashanah, also often quoted this time here, that says that in Rosh Hashanah there are three books that are open before Hashem. There's the book of the, of the, the wicked who are written and inscribed and sealed right away for death the book of the righteous who are inscribed and sealed right away for life, and then the book of all of those of us in the middle, where we go from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to see how we met. That's a Gemara, that's the whole discussion, what does it mean to be written for life or death? Not everybody who's righteous lives a life. Not, well, that's a, a separate discussion. But he's saying, he's taking himself, basing himself off of that Gemara, that there are three categories of a Jew, and he says, if we would have said, who's Tshuva for? So we would have said, for sure for the Rasha, for sure. The Benoni, the guy in the middle, probably, because the fact that he's in the middle means he's like, you know, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. What about the Tzadik Gamor? Is, is Tshuva relevant for the Tzadik Gamor? I don't know, he said Tzadik Gamor, you use such a language, completely relevant, completely righteous. He says, no, 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 is relevant for everyone. It is similarly relevant in any and every aspect and circumstance of a person's life, whether he is in the darkest moments of despair or the height of greatest joy or spiritual ecstasy in serving Hashem. A Jew must always live in the world of tshuva. Here also, this, is, this will, will uh, have hints of what Rav Kook felt as well. Whether sometimes a person, as he says, you know, is down and out, terrible tragedies happening in a life, everything is broken, and maybe that's the inspiration for an awakening. Okay, it could happen. But in the highest of ecstasy, everything is amazing. Like, now is the time for tshuva. It is great. This is a, every moment of every Jew, wherever you are, you're a, 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 a wicked person, a Russia, a Benoni, or you're a tzaddik, you're in the highest of the highs or the lowest of lows, it doesn't matter. Every Jew 
should always live in the world of tshuva. And how do I know this, says the Nesiva Shalom? This is reflected in what the sages established in our Shemona Esrei. Immediately after the fourth blessing request, requesting das, atachonein la'odam das, right afterwards we ask, hashiveinu avinu sarasacha. Every day, three times a Jew, uh, three times a day, a Jew asks Hashem, "Return us, bring us back to your Torah." Bring us to your service. Every day, we ask Hashem to bring us in full tshuva. Who davens Shmona Esrei? Only the wicked, only the benoni. also davens Shmona Esrei three times a day, and he also asks, "Bring me back to your tshuva." I'll tell you something else. You know when we say this bracha. We're going to say it in two weeks from now, three weeks from now, Matzah Yom Kippur, after a full day in Shul and all of the Viduyim and everything, we're the highest of the high. Right after Ne'ilah, we're going to dive in Marif. Right after Ne'ilah. Three to four minutes, maybe five if you're in a slower minion. By the time, from the time you start Marif, you're going to say Shimon Ezrei. It's like five minutes after Yom Kippur ended and we're going to get to the fourth bracha and Shimon Ezrei, the fifth bracha, and we're going to say... It's been four minutes since you finished Yom Kippur. And we're already asking for... Bring us back in Shuvah. Now, some would say tongue-in-cheek. There's a good reason for that, because in those four minutes, we've already made quite a number of errors. A, we're angry at the Chazan for being too slow. We, we were hoping and wishing that the Yom Kippur would end the race. We can, we can make all sorts of comments as to why we're saying it, but at the end of the day, we're four minutes into post-Yom Kippur, and we're already asking, what are we asking for? Four mi- we just spent a whole day, 25 hours, in Shuvah. What are we asking for? So we'll see. Says the Nesim there's a good reason why, why it is that we're doing this. Top of page two. Three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening, every Jew, irrespective of his spiritual state, under every possible circumstance and situation, beseeches Hashem to be in the world of tshuva. Let's now discuss. What is this world of tshuva? He has such a beautiful, beautiful explanation. What is this world of tshuva? Now, in source, in number, before we get to number four, number five, he quotes through his introduction the same Gemaras that we learned on, over the last two weeks. These are the classic Gemaras. That Godol tshuva, that it brings healing to the world, that it reaches the heavenly throne, that it hastens the redemption of Kukso and all of these, how the world was hurtling on a path towards redemption and tshuva is really uh, bringing all of these things. And last week we spoke at length, um, Rabbi Miller did in regards to uh, the fourth statement there, that tshuva is so great that it turns your uh, sins, intentional sins, into merits. And that's what the Rav spoke about last week. But we'll just keep that in mind. just want to go over some of these Gemaras as we read his uh, source number four. He says as follows. This is beautiful. The reason for this is as follows. Certainly, if one has stumbled and sinned, and there is no righteous person who only does good and never sins, so there are two aspects of tshuva. The first is, the most common one, is a person made a mistake. We, we, we all sin. As he quotes from Kohelas, there's no such thing, there's no person alive who has not sinned in their life. It doesn't exist. We're human beings. If we were to be perfect, then we would actually be, it would be Hashem himself. That's true. But we'd be angels or Hashem. But we're not. We're people. And part of the human condition is we're going to make mistakes. So that is clear that tshuva is relevant. That's the most basic level. Of course, tshuva is relevant for a circumstance where a person made a mistake. It happens in our lives, it happens in our marriages, it happens with our parents, with our children. Make mistakes. We say things, we do things. Of course, tshuva exists, the concept, and that's the classic lines that we'll learn a little bit later tonight. All of the different stages, we have to stop doing it, we have to express regret, we have to say we're never going to do it again, we have to fix the problem, all of those things. That's clear. However, he writes... But even in the highest levels of righteousness, 
where one is engrossed in Torah and mitzvahs and service of Hashem, it is impossible that there not be some pigam, pigam is a tough word to translate, I went with blemish, in his service. Even again, one is engrossed in the highest levels of learning Torah, of doing all of the mitzvahs, he's serving Hashem. It is still impossible, impossible, that he's not doing something that is not complete, not perfect. There is some element that his actions did not reach the highest levels of shlemus. What does he mean? We'll read a little bit more, then we'll go back and talk about this. However, exalted understanding that tzaddik achieves of Hashem himself. Meaning, whatever level the tzaddik has of what Hashem is and represents, and because he has this understanding of Hashem, therefore he refrains from evil and strives to attain good. That's why he lives the life that he does. He understands there's Hashem in the world, and therefore he doesn't want to do bad things. He wants to do good things. Still, standing before the king of kings whose greatness is beyond comprehension, there by definition must be some missing element of understanding of before whom he stands. You can't have, you can't understand Hashem perfectly. Let's take a simple example, then we'll, uh, let, let's start with this. Um, there are a number of questions that a person can ask. And uh, um, I'll, I'll if I ask you, do you know the capital of Idaho? Boise. Excellent. I knew someone was going to ask so let's say you didn't know that question. That was a yes or no question. Do you know it? The answer is yes or no. If you know it, great. If you don't, I can now teach you. Now you know it's Boise. Oh, you didn't know information, now you know. I can ask, do you know, do you know uh, what 26 times 13 is? Like, oh, uh, you don't know? Yeah, you can figure out how to do the simple math. And I know, I know how to do this equation. I know how to figure this out. I didn't know before, now I know. Those are simple yes or no questions, right? And if you don't know the answer, I can teach you, and now you know. I can say the following question. I'm gonna change the nature of the question. Is so-and-so a nice guy? Is he a nice guy? There is a falsehood in that question. That is a, the question is false. Why is a question false? For a very important reason. Because being a nice person is not a yes or no answer. Because what defines a person as being nice? There's no way that whoever, let's say there'd be a certain person that most of us would agree is not a nice person. Does that mean they're never nice to anyone? No, it means they're nice to the people that they're nice to, but it's not a wide enough circle that we would like them to be nice to. So we determine, oh no, that he's not a nice person. Why? Because he wasn't nice to me or he wasn't nice to my friends. But that doesn't mean he wasn't nice ever to anyone. And if I do say about someone, oh, they're so nice, does that mean they never do anything mean? That doesn't mean that. I, I know very, I know people very well who I would say are really, really nice, but they do, it happens, right? We're people. So we took something that's really like a spectrum of how nice, meaning everybody's nice in like this little circle, but some people are nice in this circle. Really nice people like it's this circle. And really, really nice, it's a bigger circle of people to whom they are nice and how many times out of their potential you know, interactions are they nice? But it's not yes or no unless we put some arbitrary measure. Like if it's big enough, I'll say he's a nice person. That's not a, real, that's not a fair question because it's a spectrum of 
How often are they nice and to how many people? But that's a tough thing to answer. So it's a, it's a, it's a question. It's not really a good question, even though we do it all the time, which is really why anyone who's ever been involved in Shaduchim knows that it doesn't mean anything when someone says, oh, they're nice. Wait, well, you decided that they're nice. What, what, like, what does that mean? Like, we could say that about everybody because everybody's nice sometimes. Let's say on that note, if I say, do you believe in Hashem? Where would you put that question? Is that in the first category of a yes or no question? Like, do you know the state of the, the capital of, of Idaho? Or is that not a yes or no question? So this is a very tricky thing that we often are misled about to thinking that's a yes or no question. And we answer, I'm assuming the fact that you're all sitting here tonight on a Tuesday night when you have other places to be, that the answer to that is yes. But that is as misleading and false as a question about a person being a nice person. Because if I ask a five-year-old, comes home from school, and I say, do you believe in Hashem? The five-year-old would say, yes. And I'd say, how do you know? And they would say, I learned in school to say modani. I learned in school to say Hashem is here, Hashem is there. So I answer, yes, I believe in Hashem. How much of an understanding does that five-year-old have? a five-year-old understanding. That's exactly what I want the five-year-old to know. But, but if that five-year-old gets in their head that the answer to the question is yes, and then they don't adapt, change, grow, sophisticate that understanding when they're six, or 15, or 25, or 35, and they just think, I checked the box already. I said yes. That's... That is a terrible tragedy in a Jew's life to walk around with the belief of a five-year-old when they're 15, 25, 35, 45, and 55, and beyond. That's, that's, it's not a yes or no question, it's a spectrum. The way that I believe in Hashem at five should not be the way I believe in Hashem at 10, 15, 25, and 50. It should be a constant, just like being a nice person, I hope, is something that we're constantly working on. And I want to be nicer to more people more of the time. I want to grow in that area. So it is with a level of emunah in belief. Says the Slana Marebi, it is impossible. What's the end of that spectrum? Okay, I started at five years old. Hashem is here, Hashem is there. Hashem is truly everywhere. Great. And then 10 should be more, and 20 more, and 40 more, and 60. What's the end of that spectrum? Where, where, when have we reached the end of my level of understanding of Hashem's existence in this world? There's, there's no end. Not as long as we're alive and breathing in this world, we will never hit the end of that destination of where we're going towards. All we can do is keep moving and get as far as we can towards the end, but we'll never get there. What's the significance of that? So the Rebbe says a beautiful thing. That means everything we do will always be with a level of understanding that we have right now. And therefore, it doesn't have the full level of understanding that I could have had, or I might have later. It is what I have right now. I want to read one more line, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. As such, I'm three lines from the end of the first paragraph in source number four. As such, Hashem created the world of tshuva to complete any lacking in His service. In the same way, this is an amazing line, in the same way that a Russia can fix or correct his sins or iniquities, that's misspelled. A tzaddik can utilize tshuva to bring his positive actions to an even higher level of perfection. 
he just said something that I had never seen before. That a tzaddik who does a mitzvah needs tshuva on the mitzvah that he did. I'm going to repeat that. A tzaddik needs to utilize tshuva on the positive actions to bring them to a higher level of perfection. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I'll give you an example, um, and we'll tell a story. It's the same story, but it, we'll, we'll give you the modern-day example, and then the, the... I'll start with the Hasidish story, as they always like to tell. So they, they tell us, you know, in those days, uh, in, in Eastern Europe, everybody had a little inn. And people would travel through, you know, town, and they'd stop off at an inn, and, which was really just somebody's house with a couple extra bedrooms. So they tell the story of a Rebbe was passing through town. He gets late at night to a, to a certain inn. He'd gotten delayed, and he, you know, whatever, knocks on the door. The innkeeper already had... Uh, gone to sleep and retired for the evening. He's woken up by the Rebbe, who does, he doesn't know is the Rebbe, comes downstairs, and there's a Jew at the door. And the Jew says, do you have an extra room? And the Rebbe, yeah, the guy goes, yeah, fine. And he shows him into his room, very nice. He gives him uh, what he needs, makes him a cup of coffee. Uh, do you need anything else? No, great. And he goes back to sleep. Following morning, there are these throngs of people around the inn. The innkeeper wakes up and he sees all these people. And he's like, what, what, what's going on? And they say, don't you know? He says, what? Don't you know that Rebbe so-and-so is staying in your inn? We've come to greet the Rebbe. He said, what? I don't know. And he goes right into the Rebbe's room and he falls down on his knees and he begs for forgiveness and he says, Rebbe, I didn't know. He says, you didn't know what? He says, I didn't know you were the Rebbe. He says, what's the problem? He says, I would have never acted the way that I used to. You were very nice. You took me in, I woke you up, you didn't yell, you didn't scream, you took me to a room, you made me a cup of coffee, you did a beautiful mitzvah, you took me in, I have no complaints. He said, but Rebbe, if I would have known who you were, I would have done it totally different. Now, that happens in our, in our day and age also. You know, your second cousin's your friend on the block is making a bar mitzvah. They ask you to host somebody. You're like, oh, okay, fine. You host Thursday night. Somebody shows up right before Shabbos, whatever it is. You give him the room. You give him a cup of coffee. You go to shul. And all of a sudden, the chazan is like, whoa, who's that guy? You're like, didn't you know? This is, you know, whoever. You're like, he's staying in my house. I didn't know. I didn't even say hello. If I, if I would have known that your second cousin who you put up in my house was a somebody and not just your second cousin, I would have done it differently. I just thought it was your cousin. I didn't know. Your cousin. Says the Rebbe, this is literally our lives. This is literally our lives. On the mitzvahs that we did. Kept Shabbos a couple days ago. Yeah, yeah, Shabbos. Why do you keep Shabbos? Because Hashem created the world in seven days. He told us six days, yes, and seven days, I rest. Okay, great. But every time I keep Shabbos, I'm testifying that there's a creator in the world. So I kept Shabbos because I believe in the Rebona Shalom. Guess what? A week later, if your understanding has shifted dramatically as to who the Rebona Shalom is, you would look back on the way I kept Shabbos last week and I would say, I can't, I can't believe that's how I spend my Shabbos. If I would have known then... What I know now, I, I, but you did. You were, you were Shomer Shabbos last week. I know, I know. But I took a four-hour nap, and you should have heard what we were talking about at my Shabbos table, and I showed up an hour late to davening. Had I known what it means, I wouldn't have done it. But you did it good. No, that wasn't good. I would have done it so much better if I knew. And it says that every mitzvah that we do, 
from the tefillin, the tzitzis, the, the tztaka we give, the Shabbos, the, everything. I did a mitzvah. I know, but now I didn't realize then. And therefore, as he reads that last line again, in the same way, the last line in the second paragraph, the first paragraph, the section four, in the same way that a Russia can fix or correct his sins and iniquities, a tzaddik can utilize tshuva to bring his positive actions to an even higher level of perfer- perfection. A tzaddik says, Rebona Shalom, I put on tefillin yesterday. Put on tefillin. And I need, to, I need to do tshuva on the way I did my tefillin. I can't believe I did my tefillin. I can't believe I didn't really pay attention. I can't believe I wasn't really thinking. I can't believe I did tefillin, hachnas azorach. I can't believe I did it the way that I did it. I, I, I want to do tshuva on that. It's an unbelievable concept of doing tshuva on a mitzvah. Tshuva is therefore the source of completion or perfection of the life of a Jew. And therefore, how do we perfect ourselves? It's through this concept, both to fix what we've done wrong, obviously, and to complete that which we've done right. Tshuva therefore brings the world to completion, which is the purpose and goal of all creation. As the sages say, Tshuva preceded the creation of the world, for it's impossible for the world to achieve perfection without Tshuva. You know, think about this in our human relations, relationships that we have, in which, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've all had this experience, I know that I have. You know, you get married, and you, you treat your in-laws in a certain way. And then you become an in-law. And you're like, oh, I, like, I totally got that wrong. Like, here I was, this 20-year-old, I thought I knew everything about the world, and I thought this, and I thought that, and I didn't understand anything about life. And if I could now go back and redo how I related to, and I'm using that as an example, it could be even your own spouse, my own parents, all of these things. You go back in time, and the understanding that I have now, I wish I could redo how I related to people in my life. And we can't really, of course, but that's the gift of tshuva when it comes to our relationship with Hashem. In our own human relationships, we can also. That's part of growing and maturing and life experiences where all of a sudden we realize the way that I ran my business, the way that I ran my relationships, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought I knew. And believe you me, all of us can say this about ourselves. When we were 20-something and, and whatever, we thought we knew everything. We thought we had to figure out. We thought the older generation, they didn't get it. I get it. And then 20 years go by and you're like, oh my goodness, these kids, they don't get it. But that's life, right? Now, I, I now know. That should be our relationship with Hashem. In which as we age with experience, we look back and we say, I didn't, I, I didn't realize, I didn't realize what life was about. And the mitzvahs that I did, I'd like to, I wish I could redo. Forget about the things that I did wrong. That's the obvious one. Even the things that I did right. So he, he sees this in two sources. I want, let's just share as we, uh, as we tie some of this up in the Rambam. As I mentioned, he, he's, he's a Hasidic Rebbe, but he likes to quote the Rambam like, uh, like the uh, briskers as well. So the uh, English is on the top of page three, the Hebrew on the bottom of page two. How great is Tshuva, says the Rambam. It brings a person to the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence itself. If you will... Um, Become a return with tshuva, you will cling yourself to me. Hatshuva mekarevus is harachok. It brings those who are far close. And mesh. Last, just yesterday, 
is very strong language. Just yesterday, he was repulsive before the presence of Hashem. He was scorned, he was ostracized, he was abominable. And today, now that he does tshuva, Ahov, he's beloved, Nechmad, desirable, the Karov, Yedid, he's close, and he's a cherished friend. So the, the Rebbe asked, I don't understand. If tshuva is simply that first level of I did something wrong and now I want to fix it. So how do you say about a person who does tshuva that he went from being repulsive and despised and ugly before Hashem and then he becomes... When you fix, if you break something and then you fix it, so where are you at the... What's your net at the end of the process? You have a fence, you're my neighbor, my kids are playing baseball and they throw a ball and it breaks your fence. I have a problem. And then I fix your fence. Where are we now in our relationship? We're, we're just back to where we started. All that we did is I had a problem and I fixed the problem. How does the Rambam say that you go from being these, these terrible descriptions to all of a sudden you do tshuva and all of a sudden you're beloved. See, he, he sees in this that there's another element to tshuva more than just I did something wrong and now I'm fixing it. It's a new level of understanding of Hashem's presence in this world. My level of understanding yesterday was like this, and my level of understanding that Hashem exists and what it means that there is a creator is different, and that indeed, that indeed can take a person from, you didn't realize I was here. Now, can you imagine if we could go back to our human relationships and do that and say, like, I didn't realize how special you were, but I'd like, I'd like to, I wish I could go back because I now I realize how special you are. Can you imagine if we could say that to people? Wouldn't that fit this description of the Rambam of all of a sudden when you do that, you become my most beloved. When you're able to say, I didn't, I didn't realize. I didn't realize the Rebbe was staying in my house. I, I didn't know you were the Rebbe. But now that I know who you are, I would have done it, I would do it differently. One more, uh, well, well, let's take a look at number seven. Part of this also he sees in the language the Raman writes, Midarke Achuva, one of the ways of Chuva, Lios Hashav Tsoek, Tamilafne Hashem Bivekhiu Bitachanun, a person cries out, though said Staka, Kifikoko, he does uh, gives Staka as, as according to his ability. Umisrache Karbe Min Hadavar Shachadum, he tries to distance himself from what he did wrong. Umishana Shmo. And then the Raman adds and he changes his name. Why does a person change his name who's trying to do tshuva? Kolomar, ani acher ve'eni oso ha'ish. I'm a different person. I'm not the same person who did these, these actions. That element of tshuva, which again, the Ramam speaks about at great length, just to, to mention that idea, I'm a different person, is this idea, what, what creates that is the, oh, I have a whole new understanding of the world. I have a whole new understanding of the Rebbe Hashem's presence, and I've become a different person. This, by the way, is one of the key components of why we daven for things. There's a big question that's asked. This is a whole separate discussion on tefillah. Why is it that we daven? Here we're, we're the days before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We speak so much about through the machzer and various statements from the sages how our, our year is written out and decreed. On Rosh Hashanah, we all know, Rosh Hashanah, it's written and sealed. It's like, why do we daven? Something happens four months later. Somebody gets sick, and everybody starts daven. Well, I don't understand, what are we davening for? 
It was written and sealed. It's a done deal. Why? What's, what's the whole purpose of this? So the, the Gemara talks about this as a discussion. One of the answers, one of the most beautiful answers, is because through the process of tefillah, we change who we are. And it's true. The person who I was had a certain decree upon that person. But we're going to change. I'm going to become a different person through tefillah, through the actions that I do, to the fact that other people, I, I'm not the same person. And so you can't hold me to the decree that was on that person. I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to be a different person. And that, that's the same idea that he's describing over here based on this one, Mishan to change a person's name, to say, Ani acher ve'eni I'm not the same person. One last source um, on this idea. One last source. So the Gemara says, um, the Gemara says that uh, it's in a, in the, there's a concept, a whole new topic for a second. There's a concept of kedushin, as we know. When a man uh, betroths a woman, we do it under the chuppah. He gives her something of value. We do it, and that's what we do. And then she, she accepts, and they're married. In the times of the Gemara, and still today, just nobody ever does this, a person can make a tanai. He could put a condition on the kedushin. He could put a condition, uh, a tanai, a condition on and say, not the way we do it, and then she says yes, and we're done. He can say, I'm going to be Mekadeshu, we're going to get married on condition, and he can say whatever he wants, that your father gives me a job in the business. Fine. If the father gives him a job in the business, they're married. And if the father-in-law declines, they're not married because it was a conditional transaction. He can say, I want to marry you on condition, you give me $1,000. If he says that and she accepts, if she gives him $1,000, they're married. And if she says, I'm not giving you $1,000, then they're not married because you only accepted it on a certain condition. One the Gemara discusses, he says, I'll be Makadesh, you on condition, I'm a wealthy person. So the Gemara says, okay, if he's a wealthy person, they're married. And if he's not, they're not. So the Gemara asks a great question. How do you define a wealthy person? <laughs> what does that mean? When he, he just put a condition and he's only married on a condition that he's wealthy. What does that look like? So the Gemara says a beautiful thing. The Gemara says if people in town give him honor because of his money, then you could call him a wealthy person. But if he thinks he's wealthy but nobody else does, then that doesn't make a difference. That's not, it's all based on how people treat him. If they treat him that way, then yes. If, he, if people don't, then, then he's not. What if a person says as follows? I want to marry you, Aremu Kadesh Ali, on condition I'm a tzaddik gamma. I'm a righteous person. So does it work or does it not work? So the Gemara says it works. So, so the Gemara says it works because Shema Yeharher Tshuva Belibo. Maybe he had thoughts of Tshuva when he said it. So the Gemara says. So the Gemara talks about whether or not it's, a, it's, it's for sure, it's a suffix, but we have to take it, maybe, listen, I know he's not a Tzadik Omer, but, but maybe in the moment that he said that, he had thoughts of Tshuva. The question becomes as follows, the Rebbe asks. Now, we didn't read through the whole Rambam, we read through some of them, but doing Tshuva is not a simple thing. We've read through these Rambams, uh, you know, from the, there are many steps to doing Tshuva. First, you have to stop doing whatever it is that you're doing. Then you have to regret what you were doing. Then you have to do vidu, you have to confess. Then you have to be mekabel ala asid, you have to say, and if you, they're like all these steps that the Ramam delineates that you have to go through for tshuva. And here the Gemara says, a person standing under a chuppah says, the Rebbe could actually amenaz amitzadik amor, right away, so maybe he did tshuva. What, what happened to all of the steps that are required? So the Rebbe said, because yes, 
if a person did something wrong, then there are all these steps that you have to go through to fix it. But there's another element which we've been discussing the whole night, which is his, his introduction to the entire concept, which is tshuva is about a new recognition of the concept that there is a creator in the world. And therefore, when I have that new recognition, I am filled with regret over what I can't believe I behaved in that way now that I have this new understanding. Now that I realize, now that I get it, can't believe it. And that might be the most important component, but this will conclude in all of tshuva, is that idea of charata, of regret. You know, when you force a child to apologize, and everybody's probably been there, so the reason why it doesn't work, and the reason why it seems like so empty an experience, like, you say you're sorry, is because the child is saying the words, but there's no regret. They, they, don't, they don't change their attitude. They just like, uh, you know, by the way, we sometimes do this as adults too. We do certain behaviors and then we realize that the behavior is not worth it because the consequence of the behavior is too great. So we stop the behavior. Not because we regret the behavior. We've just figured out that it's not worth it. So, so we stop doing it because it's not worth it. But there's no harata. There's no regret in the action. It's just... I don't want to do this because the consequence of this is too big. I, I would like to. I don't regret what I did. It's just I don't want to do it anymore. So that component of harata, of the regret, is the key component that says, I, 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 I now realize who you are to me, how valuable this relationship is. And that's, you know, if, you ever, if anyone's ever apologized to you without that, without the real regret of, I can't believe I damaged the relationship. You mean so much to me. I didn't realize that when I did this. But that component says it all. When you're filled with that charata, with that, that, that happens inside. There are more steps to go through. I have to say this, I have to do that. But it all comes from a recognition. And that's the key component. The Rebbe says, this is, this is what tshuva is. Tshuva is, I have a new understanding of the world, a new understanding of Hashem, and I can't believe what I've done. Therefore, it can happen right there in the moment. As a, as a husband gives his, his wife-to-be, and he says, I'm a nas, I'm conditioned, I'm a tzaddik gomer. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's a tzaddik gomer. Maybe he has a new understanding, and that will change all of it. And that's the tshuva process that we go through, even on the mitzvahs that we did, even on the achrasas orchimah we did, even on the tzedakah that we gave, even on the tzvillin that we wore. I can't believe, I can't believe that's how I did it. I would have done it so much better if I had this recognition, and that's what we're trying to get to through the tshuva process. Those are the thoughts of the Slanama Rebbe, Zechon Levracha, as we continue on this journey of uh, different understandings of uh, sub-approaches to tshuva. We have one last one to do. <laughs> if we were taking this seriously, we would keep it going way past uh, El. But uh, w- w- let's at least get one more in. We'll do Rav Yitzchak Kutner, Zechon Levracha, who has uh, also a unique approach. Uh, great uh, piece, as we'll get ready for Rosh Hashanah next week. Mirz Hashem, uh, Tuesday night.